Beloved, let us pray. Good and gracious God, we come wary but expectant, tired but excited, cautious but eager. So meet us, we pray, in the midst of it all. Find us a home in you. This we ask in the name of the one who is to come, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, this entire year, we here at First Pres are doing something bold, something unprecedented, something adults are kind of horrible at, but kids are absolute ninjas at doing at the most inopportune times, and it's this, asking questions. This past fall, we started at ground zero with the questions that we ask of each other. Now, I had no idea how this series was going to play out. I just knew that we as humans have forgotten how to talk to each other, how to ask questions of each other, how to be vulnerable with each other. So this past week, I asked a few folks to give me one or two words that describe how this series has been for them. Here are a few of the answers that I got. Challenging. Relevant, illuminating, soul-searching, liberating, cathartic, catalyst, healing, lifeline. Or my personal favorite, though way over the word limit, uncomfortably vulnerable, though probably good for me, like a bowl of Brussels sprouts or a kale salad. As we all learned, it takes a great amount of courage to ask each other questions. But I would argue that it takes an even greater amount of courage to ask questions of God. I mean, is that even allowed? Who are we as humans to ask questions of God? Does the Almighty even care about our stupid earthly questions? Can we even expect a response? Now, the good news is that we aren't the first to wonder these things, and we definitely won't be the last. So instead of searching for definitive answers to these queries, this Advent, we are going to follow in the footsteps of those who stepped out in faith and in doubt and asked questions of God. So here now our reading for today from the gospel according to Luke chapter 1. You will note that the passage will not be on the screens above you. As with most of scripture, this story is meant to be heard. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when Zechariah was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. 
Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably upon me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. Beloved, the word of the Lord. Last week on Christ the King Sunday, we celebrated what's the equivalent of New Year's Eve of the liturgical calendar, which makes today the first Sunday of the church year, or Advent 1. Now, as with most new things, there is this temptation to run straight towards the shiny and the novel and just to put the old behind us, start afresh, begin again. Now, we here in the church are no exception. After weeks of ordinary time talking about the Old Testament, we too might be tempted to start afresh in Advent with the New Testament, to begin again with the story of Jesus' birth. But today, we are going to fight that impulse Today, we remember that we are not starting at the beginning of a new story. No, friends, what we are doing is diving headfirst into the middle of a very old story, a story that we became well acquainted with this past fall. In the book of Exodus, we got to see firsthand how God's heart beats the hardest for those who are weak and marginalized, the poor and the oppressed. 
In the ancient story, we saw how God heard the cries of God's people, how God delivered the Israelites out of a life of bondage into a life of freedom, freedom from injustice, freedom from self-reliance, freedom from fear. Time and time again, we saw how God showed up for the Israelites. But that doesn't mean the Israelites always showed up for God. In the nearly 1,400 years that passes from Exodus to Luke, a lot happens. Ups and downs, portrayals and forgiveness, great prosperity and unity, followed by even greater division and destruction. History continues to repeat itself again and again, and God's chosen people find themselves in exile, having the same doubts and asking the same questions they asked in the wilderness. Again, they have to figure out what it means to be in relationship with God, what it means to be God's people. Again, they are in desperate need of divine help. And so by the time the story picks back up in the New Testament, a whole lot of history and a whole lot of life and trauma and hardship and joy and pain have occurred. Again, folks, remember, this is not the start of the story. This is somewhere in the middle. And helping to bridge that vast divide is our friend, the evangelist Luke. As New Testament scholar Joel Green notes, Luke's narrative draws a continuous line from the scriptures of Israel into the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and from Jesus into the community of Christian believers. And somewhere in that line, we find an unknown small-town priest by the name of Zechariah. Now, consistent with his nobody status, we don't really know much about Zechariah other than the fact that he and his wife Elizabeth, well, they are two of the good ones, faithful, obedient, blameless even. And yet there they were, getting older by the minute and still no kids, a reality that not only came with personal pain and heartbreak, but public humiliation and shame. And so it kind of makes sense that even though Zechariah is in God's house doing his job as a servant of the Lord, that he is caught a little off guard when an angel appears to him and says, look, I know you're afraid, but don't be. You and Elizabeth are going to have a child, a son. Let's call him John. And John is going to be a superstar, just a top-notch kid. Not only is he not going to get into any trouble, but he is going to be the kind of person who helps those who are in trouble. All those prayers you whispered into the night thinking no one could hear you, well, guess what? God heard you. And so after hearing the best possible news from the most reputable source in the holiest of all places. What does Zechariah do? He asks a question. How will I know that this is so? In other words, how do I know you're telling the truth? How can I be sure that you're you are to be trusted, how do you expect me to believe anything that you say? 
When I've read this passage in the past, when my faith was more zealous, more idealized, more black and white, I'll be honest, I judged Zechariah. You are a priest, dude. An angel of God is handing you your lifelong dream on a silver platter, and this is how you respond? Have some faith. But as my faith has become more complicated, more weathered, more gray, having become a priest myself, dude, I have grown to see Zechariah a little differently. Now when I read this passage, I don't see someone who has no faith. I just see someone who has had to take whatever faith he does have and stretch it over a long period of time over a lot of ups and downs. I see someone who did everything he was supposed to do, but still had this nagging feeling like he must have done something wrong along the way, or else why was God ignoring him? I see someone who got his heart broken enough times, his hopes dashed enough times, who prayed into the void enough times that he started to wonder maybe, just maybe, the most faithful thing he could do was to accept his lot in life, to accept the world as it was, to accept God's plan and to manage his expectations accordingly. So yeah, even when an angel of God hands him his lifelong dream on a silver platter, it makes sense to me that Zechariah's got some questions. It makes sense to me that Zechariah has forgotten how to hope. After all, it's the hope that kills you. Now, most of you probably know that phrase doesn't come from Luke or the Bible. No, it actually comes from a different religious tradition altogether known as English football. I first heard the phrase on my favorite television show, Ted Lasso. A show about an American college football coach coaching an English Premier League soccer team, the Richmond Greyhounds. In the first season, it is a surprise to no one that Richmond is on the verge of the worst possible fate, relegation, which I learned is just a fancy British word for demotion. Now, on the eve of the game that will seal this humiliating fate, Ted flippantly tells a group of preemptively dejected fans, why don't you have a little hope? To which May, the brutal yet very wise bar owner, responds, Ted, haven't you lived here long enough to realize it's the hope that kills you? Now, you don't have to watch this show or be a soccer fan to know what May is talking about. You just have to have a pulse. You just have to be paying attention. Ongoing and worsening conflicts in Palestine and Israel, Ukraine, Darfur, Ethiopia, Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, to name a few. Vitriol and hate already ratcheting up in preparation for the next presidential election. Do you know what doesn't take a break during the holidays? Mental illness, suicide, 
depression, anxiety, homelessness, poverty, disease, and violence. And that's the big picture stuff. Because chances are underneath all of that, you too have had your fair share of broken hearts, dashed hopes, and unanswered prayers. Dreams deferred, love lost, or never even realized in the first place, your sense of security, your sense of self shattered. Now, maybe you're like Zechariah. Maybe you're like May. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you feel like you've had enough disappointment for one lifetime. Maybe you just want to keep whatever faith you have intact. Maybe you have started to believe that perhaps the most faithful thing you can do is to simply accept your lot in life, to accept the world as it is, to accept God's plan and to manage your expectations accordingly, to manage your hope accordingly. Now, here's the one problem with that plan. Hope isn't actually going to be the thing that kills us. No, hope, my friends, is going to be the thing that saves us. As we see in our passage for today, as we see throughout the Old and the New Testament, God doesn't just come for those who are oppressed. God comes for those who have lost all hope. People like Hagar and Sarah, Elizabeth and Zechariah, people like you and me. But instead of leaving us to our own devices to scrounge out up, scrounge up whatever hope we can find in this heartbreaking and splintered world, God continually shows up for us and with us in real and tangible ways in the story of humanity, in the story of scripture, in the story of our lives to remind us of the simple yet beautiful truth that this is not the beginning of the story and it is also not the end. Hope gets that. Hope is not so naive to think that we can just wipe the slates clean and start over whenever we don't like what we see. But it is also not so cynical to think that what you see is what you get, so we might as well just all pack up and go home. No, hope remembers, hope fights, hope courageously holds on to the fact that we are in the middle of the story. We are in the middle of God's story, in the middle of a good and a holy story. Now, I don't know if you all noticed, but there is one name that isn't uttered once in the Old Testament or in the opening of Luke, and that name is Jesus, which means we haven't even gotten to the best part of the story yet. We have only just begun. And as these candles remind us, the most important thing we need for this journey isn't ritual or righteousness, fancy clothes or festive parties. No, what this journey calls for is hope. Hope as an expectation for what is to come based on gratitude for what has already been. That, my friends, is hope. That, my friends, is faith. And so this Advent, I want you to do something crazy something irrational, something dangerous for me. I want you to get close to your hope. Stop managing your expectations with God. Stop accepting what is 
and start longing for what will be. Hold fast to who God is. Remember what God has done and trust in what you know, what you know, what you know that God is going to do. And have hope, my friends, have hope. After all, it's the hope that'll save you. It's the hope that'll save us all. Amen.